Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Sadiqa Johnson at Washington County Library, R.H. Stafford. Book Club phenom Sadiqa Johnson has authored five novels to date. Her early novels include Love in a Carry-On Bag and And Then There Was Me, won Phyllis Wheatley Award in National Book Club honors, among other distinctions. Johnson branched out from contemporary fiction and reached a still wider audience with Yellow Wife, lauded by Publishers Weekly as a powerful, unflinching account of determination in the face of oppression. Born into slavery, light-skinned Phoebe Dolores Brown is forced to bear children to and manage a slave dealer's household. This precarious position pits Phoebe's hunger for freedom against the maternal drive to stay with and protect her children. Johnson's newest novel, The House of Eve, tells the interconnected stories of two ambitious black women who struggle with the consequences of unplanned pregnancies in 1950s America. It was an instant bestseller in February 2023 selection for the Reese Witherspoon Book Club. Beautiful audience. I gotta tell you guys, I tried to wear skims. Has, does anybody know skims as like the new Spanx? I could not get them on. They were so tight. I was like, you guys are just gonna have to see a little something extra. So I just wanna tell you that before I get started. <laughs> but anyway, I'm so excited to be here. This is my first trip to Minnesota ever. Um, so you guys are breaking me in here. And it's always been on my list. I kept asking my publicist, I'm like, when do I get to go to the Twin Cities? She's like, you need an invitation. So I wanna thank Club Book for the invitation and thank you all for having me. Have you ever felt like there was a calling on your life? Like there was something bigger and better that you were supposed to be doing? Well, I was standing in my kitchen in 2015 in Springfield, New Jersey, and I heard a voice that said, move. We were already looking for a new house. We had outgrown our home. So I knew that this voice was saying, move, move, like out of the state. So I talked to my husband and I was like, I think we're supposed to move. 
This was February of 2015. We went down to Virginia and literally there was no job, there was no family, there was none of that. It was just look at the map and something was saying you're supposed to be in Richmond, Virginia. And we moved our kids in, got everybody situated, and I just kept thinking like, why am I here? Like, why am I here? I love New Jersey. I love being close to New York City. I had grown up there with all my friends, but it was something that put us there. Well, nine months later, we had some friends come down from New Jersey and they were, they brought their kids, we had our kids and it was spring break and we were trying to figure out what to do with them. And someone suggested that we take a walk along the Richmond Slave Trail. And if you don't know it, the Richmond Slave Trail, it um, was enacted in about 2017. There are 20 markers along the trail. It lasts about two, two and a half miles. And it starts at the Manchester Docks, which is along the James River. Richmond was number two in slave trading behind New Orleans, which was number one. So when someone suggested it, I thought, well, this is a great history lesson for our children. So we walk the trail and the kids are young, so they're taking turns reading the different markers. And we get to the marker that talks about the Lumpkins Jail. And it was described as a punishing center and holding site for enslaved people. In fact, over a 20-year period of time, over 200,000 enslaved people passed through this particular jail. So there was a lot of history. And we got to the marker that described a woman named Mary Lumpkin. And she was married to the owner of this jail, the Lumpkins Jail. It said that she was a black woman and her husband, Robert Lumpkin, treated her kindly and with respect. But he was also known as the devil, and this was the devil's half acre. So when any planter in their nearby facility wanted to make an example of their enslaved person, they would send them to Robert Lumpkin's for maximum punishment. And so I started thinking about Mary Lumpkin and I thought, well, what type of agency did a woman like her have? We know that women like her have been blotted from our history. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. And it said that they, they had five children together and they lived on this half acre of land. And on the half acre, there was the jail where the enslaved people were kept. There was the house in which she raised her children. There was the tavern in which he did business. But there was constant chaos. There was families being separated and enslaved people being flogged. And I thought, I need to know more about this story. And I got that feeling where the hairs on my arms sort of stood up. And I knew that I was supposed to be paying attention. There was something happening in the atmosphere. You've had that feeling before where there's something happening. But the kids had had enough. So they were like, it's time to go. <laughs> Enough with the history lesson, let's go get some ice cream. So I told him, I said, let's get back in the car. We don't have to see the whole tour, but let's skip ahead to the end where the Lumpkins Jail was. And we got to the jail and right next to the space where the jail, the jail's not actually there, it's just a parking lot. But next to it, there was the sacred African burial ground. And as we were walking the grounds, my friend who I was with, he started to pretend like he was playing the African drums. 
And he said, don't you feel that? Do you feel that energy? And I was like, I do. It felt like the ancestors were waiting for us. But then I had another thought. I think the ancestors were waiting for me. They wanted me to tell their story. And that terrified me because at that point I had been a fiction writer only, contemporary fiction, AKA I was writing about me. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it, but the story literally, it felt like the ancestors got in the car with me and they followed me home. So I spent the next couple of weeks just Googling and fact finding and reading books and I knew that there was a story there, but I just really wished that I hadn't been the person who was supposed to tell it. So I was shying away from it, but I had a friend who came to my house and when I told her the story, and I told her I was afraid, she said, Sadiqwa, the thing that scares you most is what you're supposed to be doing next. And that gave me the courage to go ahead and give it a try. And I'm so glad I did because Yellow Wife, you know, went out into the world and was a Barnes and Noble pick and was my, is my greatest selling novel. Um, actually, I don't know the numbers yet on House of Eve, but before House of Eve was my greatest uh, selling novel. And so I'm so glad I did. But then you gotta write another book, right? <laughs> and so I'm wandering around because I was very clear that Yellow Wife was the best novel that I had to offer. It was, I was clear. And the question that kept plaguing me was, how do you better your best? And that was scary. So I talked myself out of writing more historical fiction. I thought what I was gonna do was write a YA, young adult book series. Anybody familiar with Jason Reynolds? Yes, okay. So I thought, I had read Ghosts with my daughter, and I thought, oh, I love the track series. And I kept reading the books even when she abandoned them, like I kept reading them. And I thought, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to be like Jason Reynolds. I'm gonna write this, this series, and I had it all planned out. I went off into the mountains in Virginia, and I was outlining the stories, and there was one character that kept coming to me, and her name was Ruby. I knew that she was 15. I knew that she was beautiful. She had a body shaped like a Coca-Cola bottle, right? The old Coca-Cola bottles. And when she walked through the streets of North Philadelphia, she was catcalled on the streets. So I knew that she was, she was a girl who was in sexual danger. But I also knew that Ruby had a mother that wished she had never been born. And being unwanted by your mother was not a new idea for me. My grandmother told me that she was the black sheep of our family. She had gotten pregnant with my mom at age 14, and she had her at 15. She was unmarried. It was the early 1950s, and this was not what good girls did. And so they hid the pregnancy from everyone, including my mother. So my mother told me that she didn't know my grandmother was her mother until she was in the third grade. Up until that point, she had lived with her own grandmother and it had never openly been discussed. 
And as I was growing up, I could always feel this tension between them. I knew that they loved each other, but there was always this extra fussing, this push, this pull, this, this shame, this something between them that I couldn't quite put my finger on. So I started thinking about my grandmother and I wondered what options did she have as a black woman in North Philadelphia in the early 1950s when she found herself pregnant? What did women do? This was pre-Roe v. Wade, right? And so what did they do? And so this question took me to one of my favorite places in the world, the library. Don't you guys love the library? And at the library, I found a book called, um, it was by Anne Fessler, and it was called The Girls Who Went Away. And it, in the book, she details a hundred different stories of women who found themselves pregnant and were sent away to these maternity homes. And I thought, no one, I've never read a book or heard anything about these maternity homes. And so I was reading her book and I was reading these stories of the women and I found that between 1945 and 1975, over 1.5 million babies were born in these maternity homes. There were an opportunity for young girls who were unmarried to go in and have the babies and give them up for adoption and go back to their regular life as if it never happened. But when I looked a little closer, I saw that there was a little bit more to the story. In these maternity homes, the girls were often coerced. They were threatened. Um, they were told that they could be arrested um, if they tried to keep their babies because they were unfit, they were psychotic, um, that, they, you know, that they were not able to keep their babies. And so they were forced then to give them up and one of the big reasons was because this was before IVF. And so there was no way for married couples who wanted to have a baby to have a baby without this sort of pipeline. And as I continued to look into the story and I read the book by Ann Fessler, I realized that this was largely a white woman's story. There were not a lot of black women in her book. And I emailed her and she said that she found one or two but what she found was that black women would actually go down south and have the baby and give the baby to a relative, or you would have the baby and pass it off as your sister or your cousin, and you wouldn't find out till later on. And I know in my own family, that is also something that has happened. But I wanted to tell this story, and I knew that I wanted to tell it from the perspective of a black woman. So I'm fooling around with Ruby and I feel this story coming on and I'm trying to figure out how I was going to tell the story because there needed to be some joy as well, right? I couldn't just focus on her and giving up the baby. So I was um, standing in my office one day and I was outlining the story and so I had a clear picture of what I wanted to do with Ruby, but I couldn't pull all the pieces of the puzzle together and in walked Eleanor. And she came to me with such rage and defiancy and anger and desperation. And she said, Sadiqwa, I need to have a baby. 
And I thought, okay, where did, I don't even know where you came from. But I also believe that stories choose you and you only have a certain amount of time to say yes to the story. Or if not, you're gonna go to your local bookstore and you're gonna see the book that you thought about with your characters with someone else's name on it. So I said, okay, Eleanor, hang on, because I'm not quite sure what to do. I, I can't have you taken over this story. This is Ruby's story. So I said, hang out for a minute. I wrote down some things and kept some notes. And that weekend, I normally take the weekends off, but that weekend I watched Toni Morrison's The Pieces I Am, her documentary, and if you haven't seen it, it is amazing. But one of the things that stuck out for me was that Toni Morrison said, she grew up in Ohio, Lorraine, Ohio, and she said she didn't know that black folks separated themselves by color until she stepped foot on Howard University's campus in Washington, D.C., Howard being a historical black college and university. She said black folks in Ohio were so busy trying to get along with everybody. She grew up with Poles and Italians and Irish. They didn't have time to pit themselves against each other. And so I thought, well, wow, I wonder if Eleanor had grown up in Ohio and then she goes to Howard University how would that be for her, an eye-opening moment, not having had these experiences? How could I write about that? And then when I looked further, I found that Howard University has graduated the most African-American doctors than any other school in the country. And so there's a tradition of wealth that passes through Howard University. And I thought, oh, I need to go a little bit deeper on that so I went back to the library and I found a book called Our Kind of People by Lawrence Otis Graham. And in the book, he details generations of black wealth, which that's not something that we often see or hear about or even know about. And some of these families could trace their wealth back two and three generations. It started right after the Civil War some of these uh, families began their wealthy journey and was passing it on. And so there were doctors and lawyers and judges and entrepreneurs. And the book separated these groups by city. But what I found in the book was that they didn't just fraternize with anybody. You needed to have a name. You needed to have, you know, light skin and straight hair. And I thought, well, what would happen if Eleanor goes to DC and she falls in love with one of the most handsome, eligible bachelors, but he comes from one of these families that doesn't just associate with anybody, how would that be? And how far would she go in order to keep this relationship together? And so that was the beginning of me pulling this story together. I always say that when I'm writing a novel, it's almost like having all of my Christmas ornaments, but I don't have a tree to hang it on. So I have all these beautiful scenes. I'm gonna write this, I'm gonna write that, I'm gonna write this, I'm gonna write that. But the trick is pulling it all together almost like a jigsaw puzzle or like a tree that's beautifully decorated. And so that is always my charge. 
One of the things that I really pay close attention to is including real life characters in, in my story. So in the House of Eve, you'll meet Dorothy Porter. Dorothy Porter Wesley um, is a real person and she spent over 40 years amassing the largest collection of black, African, African-American, Caribbean, across the diaspora, books and poetry, records and uh, letters. And she did it pretty much single-handedly. She didn't have a large staff. She didn't have um, a big budget. She was known as the shopping bag lady because she was known to root around in people's basements and um, attics and going to yard sales. And she said, some people's trash was another person's treasure. And so she was able to find a lot of these things. She had friends all over the world and so they would send her things. And Dorothy didn't like the Dewey Decimal System because it only had two classifications, one for slavery and one for colonization. And she thought that it didn't really sum up the black experience. And so one of my favorite lines in the book is she says, Dewey Decimal System be damned. <laughs> and she created a new system that was inclusive of the entire experience. Her collection, she called it her collection, is housed at the Moreland Spingarn Library Research Center at Howard University. Another character that you will meet in the House of Eve is Aunt Marie. And I loved Aunt Marie. Aunt Marie was based on a woman named Gladys Bentley that I discovered. She was also from Philadelphia. She was a cross-dressing lounge singer who was known for her raunchy lyrics. Um, she said and did whatever she wanted. She went to speakeasies in New York City. She even performed at the Cotton Club. Langston Hughes was a huge fan of hers. And I thought, well, she needs to be in my story. And so Aunt Marie was based on um, Gladys Bentley. A question that I often am asked is, how did I come up with the character of Shimmy in the story? And for those who didn't read the book yet, I'm not gonna spoil it, um, but I will say that he is a young Jewish boy um, who comes into contact with Ruby. Um, when I was thinking about my own family history, so my grandparents never married. And they didn't marry because my grandmother, my grandfather was very light-skinned and he lived on one side of North Philadelphia. And my grandmother was mahogany brown and she lived on the other side. And so like oil and vinegar, oil and water, these two were not intended to mix. And so he went off and married someone else and my mom and my grandmother were left with the shame of it all. But when I was trying to figure out Ruby's situation, I was talking to my middle daughter and I said, I think I'm gonna make him really light-skinned. And she says, oh, come on, mommy, up the ante. <laughs> you should make him Italian. I knew that Ruby lived in North Philadelphia and so I needed to be historically correct about who lived where um, as I was telling the story. So I asked my mom, I said, she grew up in North Philadelphia. My dad grew up in South Philadelphia and I knew that's where the Italians lived. 
And my mom said, oh yeah, we lived in close proximity to Jewish people. She said, you know, we shopped on 33rd Street and you know, we interacted through goods and commerce. And so I thought, oh, well that's what I have to do. And so that is um, where the character of Shimmy came from. So it, it, you know, writing a novel to me is almost like cooking a stew, right? You have all these ingredients and you stir it up and you taste it and sometimes it's okay and you're like, but it could be better. And so I drafted and drafted and drafted until um, The House of Eve was finished. I did not um, have, I did not have, I started off wanting to be an actress when I was a kid and I kind of fell into writing because I was always a lover of the library. I, I was the girl who went to the library once a week and I checked out seven books and then I read them all for the kids in the back. Check out seven books, read a book a day. And then I came back and I did the same thing and it was a big deal for me. I even dressed up to go to the library. And I was such a big reader that I naturally became a writer. I started off um, in publishing. I worked as a publicist. My first job out of college was at Scholastic Books. Anybody know Harry Potter? <laughs> I had the great honor of working on the, three, the first three Harry Potter books. Um, J.K. Rawlings is a very wonderful woman. Even when I wasn't her publicist anymore, she would autograph books to me and, and send her love. So that was where I started. And then I went from Scholastic to G.P. Putnam's Son in Riverhead as a publicist. And that was like the big leagues, right? So I went from you know, working with children to working with Nevada Barr and Katherine Coulter and Rebecca Walker, Amy Tan. And so I would use this opportunity, because at this point I had started working on my first novel. I would use this opportunity, because back then, we would ride in the car with our authors. That was my job. I went to the Today Show. I went to Good Morning America. Um, I, I was in the bookstore opening the pages for them, make sliding, you see sliding the books across. You know, that was my job. But I would always ask them, like, you know, what, what's your writing schedule like? Where do you get your ideas from? How do you get an agent? You know, and so I would store all this information because I knew that one day I wanted to be on the other side of the table. And that when it was my turn, no one could pull the wool over my eyes because I had worked in the business. I was telling this story when I was in Rhode Island and lo and behold, my, all, my old boss from Putnam shows up. But I can tell, and so I, I like choking, I gotta tell this part and I'm like choking because she's in the audience. But every day I would close my office door at four o'clock and I would pretend like I was working on publicity, but I was working on my novel. And, and she, so when she was in the audience, she was like, I knew something was going on. I just couldn't put my finger on it. But that's what I did. I wrote um, for an hour at work, and then I commuted back and forth between New York and New Jersey. And then I did my revisions on the train back and forth. And that's what I did for a while. I got married and told my husband we were having our first child. I was like, I have been working in the publishing industry. I'm connected, so I'm going to quit my job, have our baby, and get my first book published. And he said, you gonna quit your job? I 
was like, yeah, 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 don't worry. I got this. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, it's gonna turn around really quickly. So I quit my job. I had my son. I took, I got an agent. Um, my agent took my first book, Love in a Carry-On Bag, to, to the marketplace. She took it to 10 different editors. And one by one, all of the editors turned me down. And we got to the very last editor. And I'll never forget, when I started this journey, I had one children, one child. And at this point now, I have three children. So she calls me on a Friday night, it's pizza night, so I remember we're all in the kitchen and everybody's happy, and she says, I have one editor at Touchstone Books that really loves Love in a Carry-On Bag, but she needs to get permission from her boss, she's gonna call us back on Monday. So I'm like, okay, we're dancing in the kitchen, mommy's about to sell her book. I'm praying, God, please, 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 please. Well, she calls back on Monday and she says, Sadiqa, I'm so sorry. She cannot buy your book, um, but why don't we wait six months and see what we can do? Maybe we can go back out with it again. But I was devastated. As I mentioned, I started this journey pre-marriage. Now I have three little people calling me mommy. Um, so it was a long journey and I was sad, I was frustrated. I remember putting my two smaller ones in the double stroller and running through my neighborhood trying to like jump out of my skin. And I remember stopping at this lake that wasn't far from my house. It wasn't even a lake, it was like a pond or something. But I was looking up and I was like, God, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, I've, I've done this. I, I, I thought I had all the pieces. And my husband and I had gone out to dinner that night because he was trying to cheer me up. And he said, what is it that you need to do to get this book off the ground? And I said, well, I need an editor. Like, you only get one time to debut your first book. And he said, well, why don't we just hire an editor? And it was like hearing it for the first time. Like, something in my brain said, it may not be the way you want it, but you should try it anyway. And it was like the universe opened up because everything I needed quickly fell into place. I found an editor. I got a small distribution deal. I became the sales manager. So I would call up bookstores with an alias name. So my maiden name is Murray, and my friends call me D. So I would be like, hey, this is D. Murray calling from 12th Street Press. I got this great book, loving a carry-on bag for you. Can I send you a couple of copies, you know? And so that was the way I got my name out. We literally went to, I, live, um, I lived in New Jersey and then I moved to Richmond, so I'm, East, I'm an East Coaster. And we literally went up and down the East Coast with big retractables, tables, boxes of books. I had peppermints on my table, just trying to coax anybody to come on over and hear about this book. And you know, it worked because Love in a Carry-On Bag went on to win the Phyllis Wheatley Award. My agent, my editor, then became my agent and we took my next book to the marketplace because that's what I wanted. Like while I, I had a successful self-publishing business, that was too much self for me, right? I just want to write. I didn't want to do all the extras, but I did what I needed to do. And so she said, um, we'll take it, we'll take it to market. 
So we take second house from the corner to market. And I remember just feeling different. My prayer was different. Now I'm like, God, I want to have a partnership, right? I want the right partner, not just anybody. Because before I was like, I'll take anybody, right? And now I'm like, I want a partnership. I want choices. So she takes second house from the corner to the market. She calls me back on Monday. They always do this thing on a Friday. She calls me on Monday and she says, Sadiqwa, I have three publishers that want to buy second house from the corner. She said, why don't we take a look at the offers and decide who we want to partner with? And so that was the beginning of the journey for me. Um, I got into, I was with St. Martin's Press for a second house and, and then there was me. And then my editor got downsized. So then my books became an orphan, which was fine, but it wasn't, it wasn't the big bang that I was hoping for. Um, I still was doing a lot of the work myself. But then when I discovered the story of Yellow Wife, it gave me brand new wings. And I was worried. I thought, will my contemporary fans come over, the five fans that I had, will they come over to historical fiction with me? I don't know, but we'll give it a try. Um, so I just want to say, if there are any entrepreneurs, any writers, any artists in the audience, I stand here before you as someone who didn't just spark it and it worked, right? Like there was a lot of hard work and rejection and me getting to, to write. I didn't get into grad school. I applied for an MFA at NYU and the new school. They both told me no, but I didn't give up. And so I want to let you know that anything, anything that you have in your heart is absolutely possible. I always kept a vision board throughout this entire journey. And one thing that was consistent on my vision, vision board was Oprah, right? You gotta have Auntie O on your vision board because what's a vision board without Auntie O, right? You need that. And then the other one was making the New York Times bestsellers list. Yellow Wife was in O Magazine as one of the top 2012, 2021, 12 historical fiction books. And then House of Eve became a New York Times bestseller. So if there is something in your heart, something that you know you're supposed to be doing, but you are afraid, know that that's the thing you're supposed to do next. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Sadiqa Johnson and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Johnson arrived at the name, The House of Eve. So the book was originally called Where the Bad Girls Go because that was Ruby's story and I knew that she was going into the maternity home. So that's what we sold it to Simon & Schuster as. Well, draft four, you know, we get into the copy editing phase. I get a call from my editor and she's like, um, can we change the title? I'm like, what? I thought that was perfect. And she thought it sounded like a thriller. It sounded like a young adult book. And so it took a while. Like we did a Google doc with like, I'm not even kidding, like 75 different titles. 
And we got down to with the world between us. And we thought, oh, okay. So I thought that was what the title was gonna be, with the world between us. We even had the cover with the words on it. Then I got a call from the publisher of Simon & Schuster, which first of all, he didn't call just anybody. So I was pretty excited to, to get a call from him to say, mm, yeah, that's not gonna work either. He was like, how about The House of Eve or Wayward Girls? And my agent didn't like Wayward Girls. She didn't feel like it summed it up. And there was a scene in the book at that point where Eleanor started thinking about the girls in the home. And she thought, she just called them Eve, like Adam and Eve, like first woman. And then once we decided that it was called the House of Eve, I went back and sort of threaded a little bit more through to make it feel like that was always the title. This audience member asks if any of Johnson's work is going to be adapted for the screen. Um, the House of Eve, we, had, we were in conversations, but then the writer strike happened. Um, so things are sort of on the back burner, but we'll just, we'll just keep it, keep it high. We want a series, let's say seven seasons, star studded. I don't know, what do you think? HBO or Netflix, Hulu, I'll take any of that, yes. <laughs> This question is what Sadiqa Johnson is working on next. So historical fiction has bitten me really, really hard. And it's funny because I keep thinking like in the back of my head, like I really want to write something contemporary only when I see like something going on in the world that I want to make a comment about that I can't make it history, um, but I'm writing another historical. So I was working on chapter one on the plane today and um, you know, draft two is not as beautiful. It's, it's just, it just makes you feel like, am I doing, can I do this? That's, this is where I am. Can I do this? Can I really pull it off again? Is anybody gonna like this story? Is anybody gonna care? Um, but I'm writing a story that takes place between 1948 and about 1965. So historical again, um, there's this woman who I've learned just, we'll just say she's like a Dorothy Porter, but I can't tell you who she is yet. But she set my soul on fire. And the things that she's done and the way she's contributed to our country, um, and people don't know who she is. And so she's one character, and then I'm gonna tell the story from the eyes of two other ones, which I've never done three before. So that's, that's I'm like, oh, can I do this? Like, am I gonna lose them? You know, so I'm, I'm kinda in that, like, trying to pull it out. I got all the Christmas bubs. I got all the balls and lights, and now I'm trying to like hang it on the tree. But um, I am really excited about it. I mean, I just feel like, I think feeling insecure is like my superpower of working super hard, right? Because if I was like so like, oh, this book is fantastic, it probably would tank. But me like just always trying to make it better, I think is like good for me. So I feel like it sucks right now. but. By next year, it should be good. <laughs> Our next question comes from an audience member wondering if Johnson relies on any literature, music, or art for inspiration. Inspiration, I, right now I'm reading um, Demon Copperfield by Barbara Kingslover, which I was reading that on the plane too when I, when I you know, 
Um, it's a long book, but it's really good. But it's a long book. I've become like a 300 and some odd page book snob. I'm on page 322. I'm like, okay, lady, where are we going? But it's good. It's good. Um, so I'm learning a lot. So I read books for craft and entertainment. So I'm learning a lot. It's a good book. Um, inspiration. Right now I'm reading a book called The Akashic Records. I'm big on prayer meditation. And so I'm meditating, trying to get on a deeper level, have a higher connection. Um, so that's something else that I'm reading. It just really depends. I think books jump off my bookshelf at the moment that I need them. Um, just because I wasn't planning that the Toni Morrison movie was gonna inspire Eleanor's character, but it did, you know? Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's kind of what I have going on right now. So this summer, I so I get a lot of requests now because the House of Eve was a Reese Witherspoon pick, right? Yay! So everybody now wants my name on their book, which before nobody even knew who I was, so that's really exciting. Um, so I get a lot of requests to read books before they come out, which sort of is fun, but it doesn't give me the opportunity to read what I want to read. But this summer, I had decided I wasn't going to read anything but what I wanted to read. So my last three books have been my choice. This member from the audience asks if Johnson sees any of her children becoming writers someday. Do I have a chat? So I have three uh, teenagers. I have a sophomore in college and a freshman in college. Y'all pray for me. And then I have a 10th grader. And... I had my um, astrological reading done, and the last astrologer who I talked to, she said that my youngest daughter was the one who was the artist, which was crazy because she was like playing piano and like a closeted theater geek. And then the moment I found that out, I start pushing her a little bit more. And then she's like, I'm finding books that she's written poetry and she's keeping all these notes in her phone. And she says, Mommy, my worst nightmare is that I'll become a writer because I see how much you struggle and I don't, I don't want that life for myself. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. She is a theater geek, though. Our next question is if the birth scene in the House of Eve was based off of any real stories. When I was writing it, like it, I could feel like it in my stomach and... After I wrote the scene, one time I was sitting on my sun porch after, because I turned my body over to my characters. So I have a theater background, so I think that sort of seeped into it for me because they sort of come through me, but I'm like feeling it all. Like I'm using all of this. And I just felt like so sick and tired and overwhelmed that I texted my agent. I was like, I just wrote the scene. I have to go to bed. And it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and I literally got in my bed, pulled the covers over my head. It was like I needed to get back into the womb to sort of like protect myself, you know, that feeling. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't base it on anything. I experienced it through the characters, but I also researched the way the girls were treated and tried to be as honest as possible. Um, as I was telling the story, that's always my goal is even if it's, you know, good, bad, ugly or whatever, I want to tell the truth. Even though I'm writing fiction, I want to tell the truth. This fan inquires if Johnson plans to write a sequel or if she ever thinks about her characters. I haven't written a sequel, 
but um, I do sometimes. And Amazon approached me um, a couple of months ago about doing a short story. And I decided to take one of the characters from the House of Eve to figure out what happened. This is the first time I've ever done this. And I continued her story. So one of the characters from the House of Eve, there's a short story. I think Amazon gives free books to Amazon Prime people. Um, and so it'll be in one of their anthologies. I think it comes out in January, but I'll definitely post it on my Instagram when it's, when it's coming out. But it was, it was my first short story. Again, terrified, I'm always scared. Terrified that I am so long-winded that I won't be able to write a short story. And it, it all worked out. I'm actually really pleased with it. Our last question of the night comes from a middle school teacher curious about what topics Johnson is thinking about for her middle grade literature. Yeah, I, you know, now that my daughter isn't, so the whole idea for the middle books was I wanted, they wanted me to be able to come to their school and, you know, do the author thing. But now the youngest is in 10th grade. So, Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure, but Ruby was one. Um, I was going to write about these four teenagers who grew up in North Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, and go into each one of their lives because when my kids were middle schoolers, I knew like one kid's parents had gotten a divorce and he lived one week with his mom, one week with his dad. And I didn't see that growing up, but I know that that's common now. So that was gonna be one character, you know? And, and so I had some ideas, but they sort of are, are, we'll see. Thank you. That wraps up our Washington County Library event with Sadiqa Johnson. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Jacqueline Holland. Jacqueline Holland is the author behind The God of Endings, one of 2023's most anticipated fiction releases. NPR calls Holland's debut an atmospheric vampire tale that wrestles with existential questions of being and philosophy rather than bloodlust and gore. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.